Hello, Tom Gaffey. Jim. Good evening. We have a different sort of episode tonight. We, we have a couple of old friends of ours, yes. and we're going to be talking about drug and alcohol addiction. Tom, you doing what you've done down here for the last 30 years, you've Boy. seen the ill effects in a million different ways. I, in a million different ways. I, I, I think growing up in Petaluma, uh, and I think if you grow up in almost probably any community in, in the United States, it, certainly through the 60s and 70s and 80s, I'll bet uh, a lot of people have seen it in their hometowns. Yeah, I mean, it's super prevalent, and yet it's still this taboo thing that nobody wants to talk about. And if somebody has a drug addiction, they're sort of branded as, you know, failures, fuck up, junkies, or at least sometimes it feels that way. Yeah, but you know, when you go a little deeper, though, sometimes it was a badge of honor. Sometimes it still is a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. We have Dr. Van Pena. I met Dr. Van Pena a couple years ago because I had another friend who was suffering from uh, drug addiction, and he helped me help him, which was a great thing. And we have Dallas Myers, who grew up in the Phoenix. And Absolutely. He's an old friend of Tom's, and old I met friend. him a few years ago. He's experienced a lot of this stuff in his life. I'm sure you've had friends that have dealt with it. You yourself have had some struggles with it as well. Many. We're all here to share our experiences, so I'm really happy to have you guys. Well, thank Thanks you. for having us. So this has become a really interesting topic for me, something I think about daily, because drug and alcohol abuse has affected my family in a major way. My brother passed away from a heroin overdose in 2011. And at his funeral, I read a eulogy, and it described what the path was, how he got into it, struggles that he had, the ups, the downs, and how it ultimately claimed his life. People were shocked and were like, I can't believe you guys did that. That's so brave. And I thought, why is that so brave? I mean, it's just the truth. It's what happened. Uh, it was somebody who dies of a drug overdose. They never say that in the papers. It's always died suddenly. And it's yeah. always this thing that families, they want to come out with a workaround some way to not really tell what happened. And my opinion is it's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, I agree. It's a very easy path. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think shame is, uh, shame I don't think has ever really helped anybody find their way through it. So how I met Dr. Van Pena was a year after my brother passed away, I became friends with somebody else who actually is associated with the Phoenix, who I met through Tom. Yeah. A younger guy, 18 years old, and he had a heroin addiction. I really liked him a lot, and I just was, like, heartbroken to think that maybe what happened to my brother was going to happen to him. So Tom and I were trying to help in a way we can. You know, obviously, it's up to the person, but we wanted to do what we could do. He was ready to quit, and he, being a heroin addict, had a very tough time getting off the stuff. Mm -hmm. And one tool that people have to get off the stuff is Suboxone. Well, maybe, Dr. Van Penny, you'd like to tell us what Suboxone is. Uh, The brand name Suboxone is a combination of a medication called buprenorphine and another medication called naloxone. And the combination is extremely useful to help people come off of any opiate, Hmm. any opiate, in an extremely easy and humane way. And I emphasize extremely easy and humane way. No suffering. It was explained to me uh, by my friend that it works as kind of a blocker. Is that correct? Would that be the way it works? It is a blocker. An extremely interesting one, and it's the only uh, medication in the world, as far as I know, certainly the only one approved in the United States, that will block the desire to use an opiate. Spectacular. So you need to get that prescribed to you. And in trying to help our friend get that drug prescription, which he deemed as the best way to try to get over this addiction, we could not find anybody to do it. You call a psychiatrist and you say, hey, my friend is a heroin addict. Could you help us? We would like to get prescription Suboxone. It's kind of like, ah, I don't really want to deal with that. I do not prescribe that. I'm not interested in taking this. So we call somebody else and they'd say, no, no, no. My path led me to Dr. Van Pena, who I learned as I got to know him, has a lot of people who are suffering from addiction. And that's sort of become what your occupation has over time. You didn't start out as a psychiatrist. You were a doctor. You worked in emergency rooms. Yeah, I was a general physician. I'd call it that. I practiced general internal medicine, spent 10 years running hospital emergency services. So I'm an ER doctor, yes, but that's that's in the past. But over the time, I learned a lot about psychiatry, always interested in it. 
And now I pretty well limit my practice to that. About 30% of the practice, I'd say, involves some element of addictions, whether it's to uh, this or that drug. Most of it is opioids. And then, Dallas, whatever you're comfortable sharing about your history and what you have experienced with addiction, you can share. Oh, well, um, you know, I grew up around here and I started using uh, various things recreationally. Uh, I was one of those people who just found, you know, alcohol and other drugs and enjoyed the way they felt. It wasn't necessarily escaping anything. And I found something I liked and I uh, just ran with it. Um, And I eventually kind of made my way to use of cocaine and uh, crystal meth, which was my uh, drug of choice for many years. That's what kind of landed me in, uh, well, on the rocks, <laughs> but also in treatment a number of times, well, twice, uh, you know, now sober for almost seven years. Um, I basically got out of treatment once, took everything they told me to do and threw it out the window and went back home, went back with the old friends, went back to the same girlfriend, basically just did the opposite of everything they told me to do. And then the next time I was, I was broken enough, you know, I was, uh, I, I didn't have that fight in me anymore. And I don't mean you know, fight to try and survive. I didn't have that fight, that defiance anymore. I was just beaten into a state of reasonableness and uh, and was finally willing to just, okay, you know, uh, hey, when you get out of here, um, you know, uh, move into a sober living house. Oh, okay. You know, a, uh, when you get out of here, scratch that, move into a men's sober living house. <laughs> no co-ed for you. It was just an amazing experience. Great bunch of guys. And really, I thrived in that environment because of the camaraderie, but also the structure because I needed some accountability. I needed to know that if I screwed up, that was it. I was out of there. You know, I needed to know that uh, I was in a you know, safe place with people who cared and were trying to do the same you know, thing. Dallas has always been one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> I've, I like playing music with him from uh, early on from him. And, and so to have him back as a player was important to me. There was a player that came through in a band, in a punk band, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. He ended up having to go to prison, a drug-induced uh, situation. When he finally came out, he w- was very strong, very solid. He came back and ran our uh, N.A. meetings for quite a while back in the back room. Wednesday nights we have N.A., uh, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, down at the Phoenix Theater. He came in and he was uh, was running those and, and just very strong. Got his band back together and they were wonderful and it was really heart-rending for me to see that as well. And you've seen it go the other way down here though too, correct? We've seen, yeah, as we were discussing before we even started the show. There's a, a, a woman downtown who, when she was capable of having discussions, she was wonderful, is wonderful. Her heart is true and strong, but the deeper and deeper she caves into it and becomes a street person, it's, uh, the damage is so intense that you can see, and, and it's, it's, it's tough to watch. Dr. Pena, you and I have talked about the way society handles this just sort of reinforces a cycle of people maintaining their addiction and going deeper and deeper into depths of despair. I'll make a comment on uh, something was said by you earlier of shame. Mm. Uh, people are shamed because of their addiction. Others find out they're condemned. They don't get jobs. They are denied. And you mentioned some physicians do not want to see them. Uh, I've had examples of that in the last two days where a patient of mine who has an addiction problem, he has an infection. He was taken by his family to an emergency room. I won't mention it, but local. And was denied access because, as the mother said, who was a very uh, straightforward and honest woman, said uh, he was too dirty. It doesn't matter. I I, I ran three hospital ERs. It doesn't matter. It should not matter. But apparently in this case it did. Were they thinking that if they treated him under the influence it would would damage him or or endanger him at all? I don't know what their thought processes were, but uh, you don't deny a person in need. That's it, period. And uh, the infection uh, perhaps could have been better treated in a hospital setting. I did it in the office and we're monitoring that. So there is a, a response by some professionals as well as others who uh, will look at another human being who has an addiction problem, let us say, as uh, 
not worthy of any help that, that they uh, I, in my view they think these people are no longer as they are they're no longer human the shame i see people damaged that is the addicted person damaged terribly by shame they have no self-esteem they're not worth anything and will say so terribly depressed when they come fearful they don't know at least in my office they don't know if they'll get more shame from me uh, more denigration i don't do that but shame can be extremely destructive to the person it leads to depression it leads to frustration it leads to anger and this in turn leads to further addiction because it's maybe only the way that they can escape. Yeah, and you know, a note on on my brother, he was a, a very talented musician. He obviously I mean he was very young when he passed away. He was 23 when he passed away. And you know, I don't believe that his existence is defined by his addiction, but just to share a story, uh it was the second time that he went to treatment and it was just him and I and we were packing his stuff up and to your point, Dr. Pena, he said uh uh, it just got out of control. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a fuck up. I'm a fuck up. I can't do anything as well as anyone else. Everything I touch turns to shit. Uh, I think that is a pretty prevalent feeling that people who are deep in the depths of addiction feel. They feel like it's hopeless. They feel like there's nothing they can do. This is why I think you see suicide happen. This is why you, you see people who just opt to live on the streets because they think it's hopeless. I mean, there's something that really tears you to pieces when you are a person who is doing something that you know is killing you you know it's you know it's wrong you know it's going to be the end of you you want to stop with all of your heart you want to stop more than anything and you absolutely cannot on your own there's something that just tears you up and that that feeling that loneliness that just emptiness that uh you could be amongst friends you could be in a crowded room and still feel completely alone there's a depth to that despair that is just i'm i i i wouldn't have wouldn't have known it existed if i hadn't experienced it myself and that shame that uh that, that was spoken of it just builds on itself, you know? Every time you, you have to break eye contact with somebody because you feel less than, every time, you know, somebody gives you that look of just kind of pity and disdain at the same time, it just starts to snowball and just eat away at you, and uh, it's, it's terrible. And society, even without a drug addiction, maybe your life isn't going the direction you want, and you start to see your friends and peers doing so appearing to do so well. Right. People are going to college, people are graduating, people have families, people have these jobs that are, they're supposedly making all this money. There can be a level of shame without a drug addiction, exactly. you know? Exactly. And then you have those feelings on top of this cycle that you're in. You're actively making it worse, but you feel you can't get out of it. Yeah. And there's a variety of reasons why you feel that way. The shame, that's put on the person, perhaps by themselves, yes. It's put on them by their families, yes. By the society, absolutely. And I just say it again, it does no benefit for that person. It doesn't help them change. It only leads them to further depths of despair and hopelessness. Mm. Uh, because they are, and I've heard this many, many, many times, I'm trapped. I'm trapped. I can't get out. But there is a way to be untrapped. There are ways to help. And criticism, punishment, Punishment does not help. It just doesn't help. It worsens the illness. It worsens the events. It worsens everything. So I would hope that people would be helpful and recognize the, the person we call an addict is a human being just like you. Society is one of the toughest on that when they finally do catch somebody with meth, any drug that's illegal. Once you get into that system, boy, is that tough to get out of. There's so much punishment and there is so much that they will put you through besides possibly jailing you. The process of being on probation and the stops and the tests. Uh, in fact, I've been watching this for years and years. Kids will get on that and not be able to quit smoking pot and not pass these tests, or mm -hmm. not be able to quit doing the white drugs, and not pass these tests, and somebody will ask, what, what happened to that kid? Well, he's back in juvenile hall. Oh, and the first thing you know is, this is a good kid who really isn't doing that much bad down, really not, not anything that I can think of that is really that tough or bad or worthy of being locked up, but you know he didn't pass his test. Back in that system, and this is nowhere to spend a school day or a school year 
This is nowhere to spend your, your formative years. It would be good if we could look at how we're dealing with that type of punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's doing more damage than it could uh, possibly help. Vastly more damage. As far as I can tell from juvenile hall, from jail, I've been the medical director of the Napa County Jail, the medical director of the Sonoma County Jail, I've been the medical director of Solano County Jail. I've seen a lot of people in jail. The jail does not help at all, at all. They may commit other acts which are called crimes as part of their addiction, stealing and and so forth. But it's all blended together. The addiction isn't helped. So you've seen it from the inside. Is there a way that we're going to eventually be able to move away from that type of punishment, that type of drug treatment? Is anybody getting that, that we need to change that, that you see? Uh, There must be many people who see that. I've not seen it in practicality, that is, with the judicial system as I have seen it from the outside. Punishment is still the rule. Dallas, you said that when you got into things, you just sort of liked the way it felt. Certainly. But at a certain point, it became more than that. At a certain point, I lost any choice in the matter is the way I, you know, looking back at it, I started because I liked it and lost whatever power of choice that I thought I had. You know, I I did a lot of of experimenting when I was younger with various substances, but it felt like when I found Crystal in particular, that was, it was like it was the missing piece to me. It was like, I just felt complete. I felt 10 feet tall and it just, you know, chased that feeling for, for forever. It seemed like towards the end of my use, it was, the picture was just so much different. At first, it was this, you know, great thing. I could stay up and party with everybody. I could drink a 30-pack. You know, I never felt anything. I, you know, my fingers were faster. I could play faster guitar licks than than anyone I knew. And, and just, you know, things like that. And then as it progressed, it was just so pathetic and, and lonely. and We and weren't just, sure you were playing that well either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it sounded much better in my head. It got to where it just wasn't even working anymore. It wasn't using to get high. I mean, it might as well have been little baggies of paranoia and um, mistrust and abuse. And every relationship I had, whether it was with a woman or friends or or anything was just toxic at that point your world got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was smaller and smaller smaller. exactly until it was just me in my tiny little studio piled up with garbage and broken glass and pornography and empty beer bottles and just i wouldn't use the bathroom in a house like that (laughs) today and myself, I mean, when I checked into treatment, I weighed 130 pounds. I weigh 192 today. People find their ways to it in, in different ways. You had your experience. So many of my friends that I've seen deal with it come at it because they do have various psychological issues, things that trouble them, traumas in the past. Yeah. And they look at it as a solution to that because they want to feel. Absolutely. And I always say, well, I mean, it's a very good short-term solution to very, very long-term problems. So that's one way people get into it. Dr. Penny, you were telling me that you're ashamed of some of the uh, other people who share your profession, people who prescribe these... I uh, said that, yes. yes people who prescribe these painkillers to people like they're candy. I've heard from my patients, and I've had quite a few of them over the years in the many thousands. This is not a minor experience, many thousands. They're injured. They have some pain complaint, or maybe they make it up. But most of the time, it is an injury, another illness, and they do have pain. They get uh, so-called painkillers. I don't really even know what a painkiller is. It's slang. I don't think about medicines that way. But usually they're opioids. And as I've heard almost innumerable times, they just keep prescribing it to me. I go back, I get more. I go back, I get more. I haven't had the pain as I did maybe for many months, and I just go back and get more because they're addicted at that point. They're trapped already. They don't have much of a choice. But the doctors, sadly, and that's why I'd say I'm ashamed of them, don't recognize the addiction. It's too easy in the days which we are living in right now of the maybe three-minute visit. I know that is not unusual. I've timed physicians in a clinic three minutes uh, or maybe a five-minute visit. Just write out the prescriptions. My patients tell me, I go to so-and-so doctor, and they already have my prescription written out for me. I don't even see the doctor. I just get it. And, of course, they pay for it. Uh, There's a fee involved. Or the 
insurance company is billed and there's uh, money accrued to the practice because of that. I think that must be the motivation. It's money, it's greed. To me, I'm ashamed of those people. So uh, physicians are certainly part of the problem. They're not the only problem. There are people who sell it on the street, but the physician should not be the uh, focal point of these addictions at all, ever. And I think that's an awful lot of what his started uh, our friend's problem. It was with Oxycontin. I would love to talk about that. People making the jump from Oxycontin or similar drugs to needle drugs. We've seen this. You've seen it down here. You see people who dabble and they experiment, whether it's fun, whether they have a sense of despair. It's just this crazy thing where they try this, you know, maybe they take it orally and they're like, all right, that's great. And then maybe they smoke the pill, you know, freebase the pill. And then you know, or maybe before that they snort it. And every time they up the game, it's like, well, I'm never going to snort it now that I've freebased it because I don't get the high that I used to get. Yeah. And then finally, somebody says, you know, you may want to shoot it. And it's like, well, shooting drugs is scary. I would never do that. But then they try and they're like, wow, I really like the way that really felt. Like and what's interesting with the Oxycontin is that the Oxycontin is very, very expensive a pill. It's a very, very addictive drug. All of these morphine-based drugs are. Highly addictive, as they all are. And we lost a good friend probably last year to it. Hurt an awful lot of people. And I hear about Oxycontin being used so much and and prescribed so much. Just uh, in the last, what, uh, six months ago or so, we found that there were 14- and 15-year-olds on the streets of Petaluma that had graduated to uh, using heroin. And, uh, boy, I mean, to me, it's scary to me to see it being used so easily. When Dallas was a kid, uh, it wasn't heroin we were seeing an awful lot of. There were a lot of pills. Yeah. Our big street worry was still uh, meth, I think. Yeah. We were seeing a lot and of it. And just to touch on that, I mean, I in no way want to claim that I have my uh, you know fingers on the pulse of the yeah. addict community, but when I first checked into treatment in 2006, I had dabbled with opiates and maybe maybe done oxy once or twice and it seemed like 2007 2008 right around in there is when every new person i met at the treatment facility where i was an alumni or in the rooms of either aa or na it seemed like everybody coming in off the street banged up and and beat up was coming in on oxy and and I, i i mean when i was down here originally trying to get clean when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. Granted, it was court-ordered at the time. I mean, it was tweakers like me. Everybody was, was, was on uh, some sort of upper or uh, okay, or a speak. full-fledged, uh, yeah. you know, heroin user. But you know, I hadn't even heard of Oxy back then. And, you know, whatever, and, 90, and an interesting 96. difference is when you're talking about uh, 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 meth, uh, you're talking about it being made in home labs, I think. Mostly, is that correct? Well, it's synthesized by people who can buy uh, Sudafed. The government in its wisdom says, well, we have to have it behind the counter. It shouldn't exist at all. It, it really shouldn't. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. do anything for allergies. It dries your nose up just like uh, yes, it does. Uh, cocaine does. You can't sing on it. Uh, I found that. And, uh, yeah. it, that does not help uh, a runny nose. It just does not. But it's out there, and in two chemical steps, you can make it. So people buy the um, Sudafed. They go from pharmacy to pharmacy. My patients tell me this. Uh, some of them are runners of that sort up and down the coast, and they buy their two uh, little packages or whatever they're limited to. I think it was two, somebody told me. Up and down the coast. And then it all gets used as starting material mm-hmm. for um, methamphetamine and then dimethylphenamine. Uh, so when you're starting out with methamphetamines, a great amount of it, I think, is being made in street labs. But when you move over to Oxycontin, those are all actually coming directly from the pharmaceutical yeah. companies, aren't yeah. they? Purdue Pharmaceutical is a major producer of it, and they make medications that are useful, but perhaps they make a few too much. Too much. Too many. Yeah. And physicians prescribe vastly too much. You have to ask yourself, where is the oxycodone coming Coming from? from. It's not being made in somebody's motel room. It's being made in a pharmaceutical company's laboratories. People get way too much, maybe don't need any at all, and then it's diverted and sold because there's such a profit in it. A milligram is a buck. A milligram, if you know what that really is, is a tiny, tiny bit. I probably couldn't see it if it were on the table here. 80 milligrams gets you 80 bucks. Is that a street price? 
That's what I've told is about a street price. But the price in the pharmacies is very high also. So how do people afford the very high prices? The insurance companies, and I'll, I'll whine here a little bit, since I prescribe this medicine, buprenorphine, to try to Suboxone, help people. Suboxone, he's Suboxone is a brand name. My patients get abuse from pharmacies, local ones. I could tell you which ones. I won't, but they're not that many in town. They know who they are. They are quizzed about their use of it. They're criticized. Uh, one patient came to me one day and said it was standing in the line at a very well-known pharmacy that's not very far from here, technician or a clerk to the pharmacist. Uh, we got another addict out here. Uh, the wow. patient came back to my office and complained, and I complained to the pharmacist. Um, that happened only once, but the insurance companies, especially those uncovered California, refuse to cover this medication or only after a lot of labor time begging for it, basically. And then you have to re-beg every three months. But will they easily pay for uh, the, the use of, of the oxycodone? Yeah. You betcha. How do They'll you think it gets on that. the street? I wonder if, I wonder if the uh, oxy user was getting the same ridicule that from was, the pharmacy. That's a no. question I'd like to ask. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I have spoken to pharmacists who give my patients a hard time. I call them up. I don't like it. And I say, you fill prescriptions for hydrocodone, that's Norco, all day long, and you don't even blink. Uh, you have something here that helps people. It's not the same as those other chemicals. It is not the same utterly different in many of its respects. And you choke on it. You give them a hard time because the drug Suboxone is approved for one use in the United States. It's, well, it's two uses, but they overlap completely. One is to help people get off of the other opioids and then for maintenance to keep them off of it yeah. because it blocks the desire to use. And then, you know, when you're trying to kick the addiction, it is the hardest thing in the world. I mean, I'm sure with meth, it was very difficult as well. Physically, you know what? It's one of the easier ones to separate, actually, from the body. Mentally, it's it has a, a, a grip on you. It seems like coming out of treatment, as far as the statistics, at least when I came out of treatment, methamphetamine had actually the lowest recovery rate. I don't know, maybe there's a new drug that's even worse. It seemed like there's nothing to aid, really, the mental and spiritual for lack of a better word, connection to that drug. But Crystal, definitely you eat, you sleep, you kind of start to recover, you get to where you're holding down food, you get to where you've got a couple of nights sleep, your peripheral vision isn't moving as much after being up for a couple of weeks. Wow. Uh, and you really physically, uh, you bounce back a lot faster than the other people. The strange thing is being locked up with heroin addicts and pill poppers and tweakers and all that when you're, I mean, not locked up, but being in the, such close proximity when you're in treatment, everyone seems like big babies compared to the alcoholics. Someone detoxing from alcohol is easily the most terrifying and just brutal thing I've ever seen. Um, seizures and loss of bowel control and uh, sleepwalking and just mumbling incoherently followed by more seizures. And I, I had a roommate when I was in detox and I feel like such a baby for even calling it detox because again, all I really did was eat and sleep for a couple of days straight. He had to be taken to a hospital because he was literally at risk of dying. Uh, withdrawal from alcohol can be extraordinarily severe and result in death. Uh, seizures, major motor seizures, uh, can also result in death or injury. But uh, a person becomes psychotic. Uh, they see things, hear things that aren't there. They do lose bowel and bladder control often. They stagger around, they fall. It is horrible to see. But this is profound. If you're a huge cocaine user, if you're a huge crystal meth user, you're a huge heroin user, and you do a bunch for a long period of time, and you decide one day, I'm not going to do it anymore. The detox from those drugs will not kill you. It will not. But detox from alcohol abuse can kill you. Mm -hmm. And what's the other one? This is so oh. profound because people do these drugs you're about to mention like crazy in this country. Mm -hmm. And what is the other one? Benzodiazepine drugs, the uh, typical ones, uh, diazepam or Valium, Lorazepam. Xanax. Or uh, Ativan, Xanax, among the very worst. They're, they're listed as sedative hypnotics or anxiolytics, if you use a technical word like Anti -anxiety that. Anti-anxiety drugs. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And are these drugs addictive? You bet. You bet. They're extremely useful but in moderation. Uh, if a person has an anxiety disorder, these medications work very well and very fast, but then they keep being prescribed again and again and again. Oh. And 
in withdrawal, if a person gets the dependence, which is very easy to become dependent, and you miss a dose, or what used to last eight hours, now only lasts one hour, they cause anxiety. And then you take more, and then they cause more anxiety, and then you take more, and so forth, and you're trapped. Uh, let me see if I understand it. So while you're taking these prescriptions for anxiety, does your anxiety disappear and you can stop taking these drugs? No, it's short-term, right? Anxiety can be short-term. It can be situational. Uh, some people suffer from what we call anxiety on a day-in, day-out basis for years and years and years. But a lot of it is situational. Someone dies in the family and the anxiety is palpable. Perhaps short-term use of these medicines is perfectly appropriate, but one has to manage them. You don't just write prescriptions and just keep on handing them out. That's why I see people. I don't call in prescriptions uh, very often, and certainly not for drugs like this, because I don't want to be part of that process. But yeah. to your point, Tom, you. let's say that someone has just anxiety all the time, okay, no outside events, they feel a lot of so anxiety. It, it's not take it for a month, and then all of a sudden you don't have anxiety It's anymore. not like an antibiotic. It's something right. where when you take it, you feel it, and it works fast, and it can really help people. There's need for treatment of those conditions. Psychotherapists uh, are very useful in this case. I like to get the intellectual, cognitive kinds of treatments whenever I can. I prescribe extremely little benzodiazepines and only for short-term uses for virtually all patients. I've got two patients in my entire practice right now who uh, use benzodiazepines on a chronic basis, but I don't increase the dose. To answer your question, if you cannot think of a better way to treat their anxiety disorder or you've tried and nothing else is successful, you don't go from a half milligram to one to two to 12 to 20 or whatever. And I've had people in that range in the 20s. That's Because some doctors do that. Then it's the job of getting them off of it without doing it in a way that causes a seizure and kills them. This is risky stuff. This is risky stuff. In meetings and things like that, there's an interesting phenomenon of people who are getting cleaned up or maybe even have some time and you hear their story and so many times, I, I couldn't even count how many times I've heard somebody say, you know, I thought this was fine. I was getting this from a doctor. It's so much easier to know you're screwing up, you know, when you have to go to some seedy neighborhood or yeah. or to break the law just to get what you're looking for. But these people are getting these things from someone they trust, someone who's got status. You buy it at a national uh, exactly. chain store. It's no respecter of class. It's no respecter of status in society. These are very highly physically addictive substances. It doesn't care who you are. If you continue to ingest oxycodone, you will become physically addicted. Uh, I would use, I don't argue with the language really. The brain is part of the physical body and they're addictive. Physically, that doesn't mean anything to me really. You know, I'm not criticizing you, it just doesn't no, no, mean no. anything to me. Uh, these chemicals affect the brain and the brain response is what is the addiction. And the behaviors that go around along with the addiction are uh, products of the function of the brain. the brain. These are brain diseases, period. In your opinion, there is no difference. To me, to me, uh, uh, many people would disagree with me, of course. It is in our language, mental disease, physical disease. Mm. To me, there is no difference. Why do I think that way? Because I think of the brain as just as much a part of the body as the heart or the bowels or whatever. Uh, it's part of us. We're a unified whole. It is an illness of our bodies. You can call it physical or whatever. But to sidestep mental, what is mental? A, a disease of the mind? Well, yes. But what is the mind? A concept. There is no mind. Uh, I can't find a mind in your body, right. Tom. I, there is no. But you've got a brain. I know where that is. And that is a disease of the brain whether it's your brain or my brain yeah, or anybody else's brain. And we're all the same that way. It does not respect anything. I've had, let's see, I, do, I still have people who are multi-millionaires, filthy rich, and they are, two that I'm thinking of, absolutely devastated by addiction. It has no respect. Mm. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are, yes. the color of your skin, how tall you are. Uh, it, doesn't, it has nothing to do with that. Nothing. This very drama is lived out daily, I daily. think, around us yeah. by so many people that have so much less. And when they lose it, they really don't know where to go and don't know how to get that help. They lose their children. The court will take sometimes children away. I have a patient who suffered terribly with that. But yeah. did you see it as warranted given their addiction and how it was affecting the children? In my judgment, no. But there are certainly circumstances where it is. Absolutely, yes. 
where children are abused, neglected, yeah. harmed, uh, put in uh, situations dangerous where uh, situations. they could be dangerously yeah. harmed, killed even. The Child Protective Services people do an admirable job uh, virtually all the time. In the cases that I'm thinking of, it was not warranted because there was no injury to the children. It was just, well, you're taking these nasty, terrible drugs. You are a bad person. Therefore, you're not allowed to be the father of your children anymore. And that's even another avenue that's got to be worked on to get them back on the road to recovery, I would think. is Absolutely. I, yeah, beating back that shit that just, society has told it them It starts to just piling on. And even yeah, well-meaning family on. members, and perhaps I could be counted among them, you know, you're faced with this new experience as somebody who has family members who are battling addiction. And you're seeing the behavior, and it's aggravating to you, and it's disruptive, and it's destructive, and you get mad yourself. And then your reaction to that addiction, even though you're trying to help because you think you know best, sometimes can be devastating. That's why I think that groups like Al-Anon are, are very helpful. Al-Anon is different than AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Al-Anon is for people who are friends and family of addicts to go to, mm -hmm. to learn what is effective, what is not, to establish boundaries, to not help perpetuate the addiction, as opposed to being passive-aggressive. Yeah, or being, even enabling and, and things like mm -hmm. that. It's a learned skill. You're watching someone you love effectively destroy themselves. How do you react to that, and how do you help in any way that you can? Because it's up to the person ultimately to alter their behavior, but you can help. You just don't want to make it worse. People use the term of clean and sober. If you're using a chemical, you are not clean. And that is a misuse in my mind of our language. I'm looking at Dallas. You've said that you've used these various medicines and you're not using them now, but when you were using them, I would not call you unclean. You would not be unclean like a pariah. That's where the language leads us. Uh, this is a false use of the language, but it has colored people's thinking so profoundly that I, I think it's just a terrible misuse. I'd like to talk about recovery because, I, number one, you never want to end a story on a, on a bad <laughs> note. But number two, because there is hope and there are ways to go about it and there are great stories out there. And Certainly. we all have experience with that. In any of the addictions, there is, there is hope and there is a possibility of beating that addiction if that is as you desire to do. So what worked for you, Dallas? You know, I went uh, the, <laughs> I guess, old-fashioned route. I did do treatment. I did a 30-day uh, stay at Azure Acres. And then I moved out of that directly into a sober living environment. And I got immediately plugged into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in Marin. Which is important to note, though that you went through Azure Acres once, and then it didn't work, and then you went through again, well, and then it, it did work. I mean, it's not that it didn't work, is it? Is It, it kind of worked for a minute. It did. I, I was sober for about a year, okay, uh, a little over. And really what happened there is in getting 30 days straight of, you know, eating and sleeping and, uh, you know, three hots and a cot, I saw immediate physical improvement. I literally went from, you know, being this scrawny, you know, 130 pounds wet um, skeleton, basically, to physically feeling better than I had in years. And I immediately started to build on that and I just felt so much better physically that I really perked up, you know, emotionally and in recovery they call it the pink cloud and it's basically just this what they call a temporary euphoric state of early sobriety and most people experience it. I mean, I I don't know of anyone who hasn't really. And I just kind of rode that out. I got, you know, a job, I got the cute girl that I met at a meeting and and all that and I really just kind of ran with that. When what, what I didn't do was any of the things that were kind of suggested of me or or anything to really build on my own kind of toolkit and any way of dealing with problems when they came up. And certainly, you know, something that was really touched on a lot by the doctor, which is the shame. You know, I started out of experimentation. I loved it and I kept going. But what I did from that phase of experimentation to checking into Azure Acres, I accumulated a lot of shame. And, um, what the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is really about is, is breaking that down for me. That's, that's my experience, and it's certainly where I felt the most value of it was taking the shame out of the game, as they say, and really cleansing yourself of all these things you've literally been carrying around and that are poison. Just resentment and shame and, and guilt around things. And it's just it's those types of things that really separated me. And, and I mean, not from 
the pack, but, but separated me from my fellow man because I felt less than, because I was putting this unnecessary pressure on myself. So I think really in that second trip through, because I was willing, well, to backtrack a little bit, I didn't have any tools. You know, I really didn't build anything for myself. I didn't address any of the issues. So when things stopped going my way, when my hot streak was over and I I finally crapped out, I just went back to using drugs and alcohol. And that was really my solution. That was my, at that point, my my way of not feeling things, my way of getting, you know, the girl was gone, so I'm going to use. And, you know, I lost my job, so I'm going to use. And, you know, I am one of those people who started out of experimentation. But like I said, I accumulated a lot of shame throughout the years and a lot of things to use over, in my mind at least. But what happened when I got out the next time is I really started to address those issues. I, if nothing else, I followed a few instructions, you know, and and the things that I did get right were the important ones. I didn't get loaded right away. So I, I had the opportunity to get that feeling again, to get physically well. And then I met some guys and they were doing the same thing. And there was something really powerful about that where you're, you're going through the same experience, you're going through these growths together. I mean, I felt like I was on fire. I would trade anything for that high, that high of early recovery where you feel like a new man. Well, you felt hopeless for so long. Exactly. And that the other side of that coin, when you immediately flip it, feels like heaven. Um, euphoric. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I went to a, a, a few meetings down there after I moved into the SLE and I met the guy who sponsored me, took me through the steps and whatever. When I really start to tear away at the shame and the guilt and everything that I was carrying around that made me feel like I was less than or that I wasn't a part of or everything that made me feel like a freak. When I really got rid of that, um, that was the most profound change for me, I think. And that's where I consider my recovery began. I shouldn't say began, but that's where I really felt that big change. And, uh, I really felt like I was a part of that movement all of a sudden. You know, I really felt like I had arrived and in a good way. Because I remember the first time, maybe not the first time I found Crystal, but uh, not, and that's not a woman, that's Crystal <laughs> meth um, <laughs> or methamphetamine. But the first time I smoked it, I remember, okay, I remember that feeling. I had arrived. It was different than that. This time, my arrival was different. I felt like I was finally, you know, just free of that obsession, you know, and, and it really is an, an obsession. You know, I've talked to a lot of people and they go, well, I still think about using or I still think about drinking. Still dream about it. Yeah. 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 Hey, a dream. Oh, yeah. that's a freebie. You know, you get, I still wake up with terror anytime I've had one of those and then go, Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> but that obsession to drink and use or, or whatever it is, that is a battle I lost 100% of the time. That obsession, you know, just grinding, just sickening urge uh, that had complete power over me is absent from me today. And that's really, really what I got from recovery is just essentially kind of the power of choice again. You know, I got a little bit of sanity restored. And I mean, I've got enough of a cushion where I would really, I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm never too far off, but I would really have to look for it. You know, I would have to actively go, okay, this is it. I'm doing this. It's not going to sneak up on me and happen by accident. Dallas, I, I, you I work it every few, day. Is yeah, that correct? You that's work on absolutely, this every day. Absolutely. You think you're going to be working your solution every day I, for the know, rest of your life? I hope so. It's so far. Yeah. I mean, it's. I certainly do not want to say it's the only one yeah. because I've seen people get clean and sober and, and all that in numerous ways. But for me personally, you know, I found something that worked. It's turned my life around, certainly. Yes. I had every friend of mine from around that time I would kind of reminisce and, and I don't want to say romanticize, but I would just kind of go, you know, I wonder what would have happened if I had continued on that way. And pretty much unanimously, everybody's like, oh, you'd be dead. <laughs> you'd be dead. You'd be dead. That there's, was, there's no, yeah. Here's the thing. I mean, from, from someone who's watched you since you were in seventh grade. Right. I've known you an awful long time. Uh, I love where you're at right now. Yeah. Uh, it's whatever, whatever brought you to this point. Whew, I love that as well. And here's an interesting uh, fact about tonight. And Dallas's uh, recovery and, and the way he's working on it. You guys probably won't hear this, but his phone rang about an hour ago. 
and uh, we had to stop recording for a minute while Dallas made a call. And the same thing Dallas did uh, when we were playing on the road. Yeah. He would every night make this call himself. And that to was this six same. years ago when we did that, that David was six Allen years ago. tour. And here you are still doing it every day. Is that correct? Yeah, that's and correct. And what is that? What happened with that phone call? Well, so... When you're in there, it's a strange phenomenon where is because when you're in where it was uh, Azure Acres Treatment Center. It's a treatment center. Okay. Yeah, it's a, a chemical dependency treatment center. Hey, can I just before you tell the story? Yeah, I just want to say like I think the world of the people at Azure Acres, and I specifically want to say I think the world of Dave who works there. Uh, he is one of the best men I have ever met in my entire life. Yeah, and I think the world of Herbeth who has unfortunately passed on. Right, she was a counselor for several of my family members there, and my goodness, I think the world of those. People people. And I just want to say I, that. I, I want to throw in something on Dave. I've met Dave many times because I've worked on a part-time basis mm-hmm. at Azure Acres and he is superb. just want everybody to know that. Absolutely. Now, Dallas had left that center about six years ago after a successful treatment, yet tonight his phone <laughs> rings. And what was that phone call? Well, that so that's an alarm basically that I set to remind me to call in every night when you're in there. And that was a really powerful moment for me because when I was in there, there was a guy running it named Jerry, and uh, you're in there, you go around at the end of the day, and it's at 10 o'clock, and you check in, basically. They call it closure because it's, it's a closeout on the day. Everybody checks in, and you discuss what you did in group. You discuss if you liked the food or whatever. Some people got as uh, nitpicky as that, and some people really took it as an opportunity to uh, express some gratitude. But you go through each person and... You check in on the day. But during that time, it's about a half hour period, depending on the size of the house. People who have gone through call in and the house says, good night, Dallas, Uh, we love you. And it's just a little, you know, quick couple of seconds. Uh, None of them have lasted uh, (laughs) too long. There's not a lot of Q&A. But for the people who are in there, it's usually people who had just gotten out and they're checking in. You see, you just get this glimpse of going, okay, there's somebody out there doing it. Man, and you know what? They were just in here and they're just as screwed up as me. (laughs) So you get a, a little bit of a connection to the outside. But what you also get are these nameless people, which is now what I've become, I'm sure, who just call in every night and you go, man, who are these people? They're out there doing this too and they've been calling in every night and the people who were checking out the day uh, I got here said that same person called in every night. So there's people who just check in constantly. It just gives you this, you know, just a little bit of hope. I mean, that is what helps people recover from this is hope and the absence of hope is what perpetuates a lot of these problems. So there's a lot of ways to recovery. But I think the world of the program, AANA, I mean, there's a lot of yes, people criticize well. it a lot. People say uh, you have to go to a meeting every day when you get a treatment. That's stupid. Uh, the people who go there are a certain way. Right. You know, there's a million criticisms you can people make, but there's a million criticisms you can make about everything in this world. Right. And what I love about AA is I love the community. I love the fellowship. I love that it doesn't matter if you make $50 a year or $50 million a year. It doesn't matter if you're straight. It doesn't matter if you're gay. It doesn't matter what your religion is. You have all been brought to your knees by addiction, and you're all there for the same reason, and there to support each other, and there to remind each other of, you know, you're going to get these thoughts, because you're going to get these thoughts maybe for the rest of your life about, what if I were to go do this? Things are hard. And it serves as a reminder that, whoa, 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 that's not a good idea because of his story, and also... Hey, I'm struggling too. I want to be here with you. You know, yeah. don't do that. I just think that the AA community is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, truly. So, yeah. I, w- I would like to comment on that also. As we're talking about recovery, I- I'm not so sure people can say they recover. It's a process of recovery, and that's part of AA too. AA, NA, Al-Anon, all of those programs are superb. I couldn't possibly criticize them. I've talked about the use of medications, yes, but those supportive, caring, and loving groups uh, are extremely important, and the originators of AA were geniuses. Uh, There was something Jim touched on, too. There's that so much camaraderie, and when you meet people and you meet these new people, not only are you now connected to them through this 
community, but now you can call on these people, you yes. know, and it's uh, granted, it takes a ton of courage to do so when you're down and out or you're having those thoughts because that shame creeps in and you don't want to let them know, you know, you're feeling weak or whatever, because you're fighting these urges, but you can now call on these people. You can now go see somebody, you know, you've got these connections that these people are going to let you keep coming back and coming back. They they are there there to help. The thing with AA is it's very simple. You show up and people share stories and that's it. You know, there's no membership fees, and you're all there for the same reason. And I've gone to A meetings, and I, I, I suggest that even if you've never touched a substance in your entire life, there is such value in going to these things. The camaraderie and fellowship is like one Certainly. of the most beautiful yeah. things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a closed club. You can go there, sit in the background. No one will question you for a second right. just to experience it. I, I'll tell you a quickie on my brother. He's an alcoholic. And he suffered a lot with that alcoholism, but he hasn't had a drink, and I think he's told me the other night out of 29 years or something, it might even be more than that. As he says to me, AA is what keeps me sober. That's his treatment. Mm. Works. He goes every day to AA. Uh, this brother of mine is a linguist. and He likes to travel. He travels all over the place. Uh, a few years ago, just a very few, he went to China twice. He doesn't speak Chinese. He wanted to see some of China. I asked him, did you go to AA in China? Uh, you know, like a stupid brother asking a stupid question. And he looked at me, of course. I said, but you don't speak Chinese. And he says, it doesn't matter. He says, I got up and said my piece. They got up and said their piece in Chinese. I said it in English, and we all got along. I mean, the camaraderie is amazing. You can go to China and... He was accepted. I've spoken to a lot of people who have gone to meetings out, out of the country, and there's a certain rhythm to an AA meeting, and there's certain things that are said at every one. And I've actually had people tell me that they could sort of understand or at least tell when somebody was in the depths of a, a bad story, and they could tell kind of what was going on uh, even without the language, because there's a certain rhythm to an AA meeting, um, and they just kind of knew what was happening. They knew when they were reading what parts out of the book and things like that. Wow. So it's pretty funny that way. That you know, by the way, that is the uh, the Denny's way of life. Uh, when Denny's first came out, uh, <laughs> my dad had read me this report uh, when I was very young about what their philosophy was. You could walk into any Denny's in this country and you would see exactly the same thing and feel exactly the same mm-hmm. comfort. And, uh, <laughs> and that works worldwide with yeah. AA or NA. <laughs> there are many ways to get to recovery. There's not just one route. You know, It's not just taking a pill. It's not just going to three meetings a day for the rest of your life. <laughs> there's a lot of different ways to do it and there's a lot of different people that have done it. You know, we're in the Phoenix Theater, which is yeah. an open community center, which has yes. helped a lot of people with these issues, yeah. given them a place to go, given them someone to talk to. These doors are open. They Dr. Are. Van Penny is a man who wants to help people. I'm sure if somebody were to contact Dallas out of blue and say, hey, I'm having a hard time, you'd have some ideas. You know, be a support for, for me as a member yeah. of the program. I mean, the whole idea of the program is yeah. that you you are there to support your fellow man, your gotta brother. Give it back. You got to give it you know, back. And I do want to remind everybody one more time uh, Monday nights from uh, 7 to 8 p.m., AA meetings at out the of Phoenix the Ashes. Theater. Group, the out of the ashes group. Wednesday nights, it's from seven thirty to eight thirty, and that's NA. And uh, you are welcome if you got nowhere to go those nights for whatever reason. Come in and sit in. It's in the dressing room with the Phoenix. Come on yeah. in. So you have four people at this table who want to help the greater world at large, <laughs> and there are hundreds and thousands of others out there. Mm-hmm. So there is hope, mm-hmm. and that's what we wanted to talk about today. It's a huge issue, but it's also not this disgusting, gross, unclean thing that is your destiny and, and solving it is not impossible no mm-hmm. certainly not so i mean that's that's what we set out to talk about and i think we were able to hit on some of those uh, notes all right dr pena in dallas thank you guys so much for coming this has really been a great night down oh, here thank you so much for thank having me so so thank you yeah. thanks for asking me jim felt very special to be part of this so thank you guys for coming on yep thanks. thank you